This is recording number 10989 from the teaching ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Fairfield, California. It was recorded on Sunday morning, May 27, 2012. This is the second message in a study of the Bible's book of Hebrews. This message by Randy Bolt is titled, The Way of Salvation. We're going to be continuing today a study of the book of Hebrews that we began last week that will take us through most of the summer. And we're working under the theme, the new and living way, the way. Because in Hebrews chapter 10, the theme verses for this book can be found where it describes what Jesus has opened up for us as the new and living way. And so each week we're going to be looking at a chapter or two and taking a look at more specifically what this new and living way looks like. And last week we talked about how it is the way of the Son, S-O-N, the Son of God. It is the way of the Son. And today we're going to be looking at the fact that this new and living way is the way of salvation. The way of salvation. Earlier in the service when we were singing and worshiping the Lord, uh, Starlene mentioned we are the rescued ones. The word salvation has to do with rescue. This new and living way is not a way of religion. And when I say religion, I, most of you know what I mean, but in case you don't, let me just uh, define that term because... I, th- I think most people think being religious is a good thing. And defined rightly, it is a good thing. But most people have a wrong definition associated with that word religion. Religion, as is most commonly understood, is the efforts of human beings to please God. To get on God's good side, to make him happy, to earn his favor, to earn eternal life or another round in this life or whatever it is that you believe. That's not what the new and living way is about. The reason there is a new way is because religion doesn't work. You cannot, we are sinners. (laughs) We can't undo that fact by... By no matter how much good works we try to do, no, how, no matter how much we try to turn things around in terms of our behaviors, we are sinners at the core. Something had to be done about that. We could not rescue ourselves. We needed to be rescued. And that's what salvation is. God rescuing us. The new and living way is a way of rescue, the way of salvation. And that's what we're going to be looking at in chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews. And we're going to begin reading at verse 6, although we'll come back to the first four verses uh, a little bit later. But let's begin reading at verse 6. But one testified in a certain place saying, now remember, 
in case you weren't with us last week or have forgotten, that the writer of the book of Hebrews, and we don't know who that was exactly, um, uses the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, to, uh, 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 to undergird, to highlight, to um, explain, to verify, to validate the all that was consummated in the life and ministry of Jesus. In other words, he's, he's making very careful to explain to people who are Jews by, by birth that what Jesus came to do was not to undo the faith of their fathers, but to fulfill it. So he uses the Old Testament scriptures. You'll see Old Testament Verses and passages quoted all the time in the book of Hebrews. And that's what we're going to encounter right now from the book of Psalms. These words were penned by David. You know, David and Goliath, that guy. The greatest king of, the, of, the, of Israel. He penned these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But one testified in a certain place saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? Have you ever considered that? Why would God get care at all about me? What do, how in the world is it that in the vastness of his infinite domain he gives one moment of consideration to a little tiny speck in that universe named Randy Bolt? And when David was considering the immense love of God, in this passage from Psalm 8, he says, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. The angels are the servants, messengers of God. And this isn't a, a teaching on angelology. I'm not going to tell you all about that, but let's just... Let's just have that little basis of understanding. They are the servants, the messengers of God. And David says, you've made man lower than that in terms of, you know, the priorities of things. You've made him a little lower than the angels. Now then get this. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Two things. You crowned him with glory and honor. And set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. These, dear ones, are amazing words and they describe to us, from God's perspective, the purpose of man. It was God's intention all along, from the beginning, that you and I who were created lower than the angels in terms of the hierarchy of things would be crowned with glory and with honor. Can you imagine? This is how God thinks about you. This is how God thinks about me. Not as somebody that he has to put up with. Not, was, not as somebody that he has to just kind of tolerate. But as somebody who's so precious to him that his whole focus, his whole intention, the reason you are, dear one, 
It's not because your mom and dad had a glint in their eye one night. <laughs> but because God intended that you be crowned. That he himself <laughs> crown you with glory. With glory. What is glory? We talked about that last week. It's the divine word for beauty. I don't know how to describe it better than that. I can't. It is one of those words that defies description and definition. But whatever it is that makes God beautiful, He intended to crown you and me with that. Crown Him with glory and honor. Have you ever received an honor? I was going through my cedar chest... My, my cedar chest. Sue's cedar chest. The one I made for her when we, before we were married. Her hope chest. I don't know if even people have those things anymore. But it's this box lined with cedar. And she has, we have all this stuff in there. That memorabilia and whatnot. And you go through there and there's all these ribbons and things. Of, of when she was a track star in her school. <laughs> Who knew? It's always a, it's always a, how many, you know, you cannot, <laughs> the day is never going to come, dear one, when someone wants to honor you and you're going to say, oh, please don't, I'm so sick of being honored. <laughs> right? We love that. We love that. But when you think about the, the almighty God wanting to crown you with honor, I mean, it, it doesn't it just make everything, whatever it is you're working for, a raise. You know, uh, some of you are, are athletes and you want to beat your, somebody's time or whatever it is you're working hard for in terms of, you know, that, that next honor. Doesn't the idea that God's intentions from the beginning was to crown you with honor, doesn't that just sort of dwarf everything else and make it all without consequence? This, this is God's plan for you. This is God's plan for me. And not only that, but he meant to give us, and he did give us dominion. We talked a little bit about this last week, but it said in verse 7, and set him, Adam, us over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, it says that God gave mankind dominion. And it wasn't a regulated, it wasn't a constraint, it, did, it wasn't dominion with training wheels. It was dominion. This was God's plan for mankind. That the one that was made lower than the angels would be crowned with glory and honor and given dominion over the works of God's hands. Startling. I mean, it's, it's really, I mean, I stand here after having thought about this and prayed about it and studied this and I still can't grasp it. Because on this side of things, I'm looking, out the, I'm looking out the eye holes of a guy who, who lives in a sin-scarred, fallen world. 
If you've ever visited our home on Mare Island and come from Highway 37 and made your way through the north part of the island, you know what a bombed out, burned out, busted place looks like. It looks like a war zone. You know, there's graffiti everywhere and, and broken glass. and I mean, it's a mess. It's a mess. But for us, we are, we've become, I don't just mean Sue and I living on Mare Island. I mean, we as a race, we've, we've become used to living in a world that is not different than that. It's a world broken, scarred, graffitied by sin. And we've just become used to it. So the notion or the idea that God's intentions from the beginning was something different is really hard for us to grasp. It's like going to Cambodia and talking to those little orphans about having a Maserati. What? They have no way, nowhere to, nothing in their concepts, nothing in their in their uh, minds, no place to put that. It doesn't mean anything. And so when God says these things to us, it's easy to disregard. It's so hard for us to comprehend. But I don't want to go any farther today until we see that this was God's plan for me. Now, I mentioned last week that you know, sin screwed that up, and that's what we're going to see here. Verse 8, you've, you've put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him, but, these are, you know, that three-letter word is probably the saddest word in the scriptures. But, now, we do not, yet see all things put under him. Why? Because of sin. In Adam, in the first Adam, we've all sinned. And that's not to, not, not to take anything away from the fact that I have my own personal record of sin, but in Adam we've all sinned, come short of the glory of God, the Bible says, and cut ourselves out of God's intended purposes for us as a people. Now here's another but, and this one is the most glorious word in the New Testament. Verse 9, but we see Jesus. We don't see the fulfillment in this t- now, right now, of everything God intended for us to experience. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Does that sound familiar? The second Adam in another place in the New Testament, the Bible says Jesus was the second Adam. He was also made a little lower than the angels. This one who is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, came and clothed, laid aside his divine prerogatives, came and was clothed in human flesh to rescue us. This is the way of salvation. Here we go. We do see Jesus, who is also made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, so that he could take the penalty of sin that was ours and, and suffer in our place. And now he is crowned 
with glory and honor. What God intended for us as human beings has been recovered by the Son of God. That he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. He suffered in our place. Remember that word, tasted death for everyone. We're going to come back to it. He tasted death for everyone. And not only, that not only means that he bled and stopped breathing and they put him in a tomb. That he died physically. There's more to it than that. But he did that for everyone. Now skip down to verse 14. Because we were talking about the purpose of man. And now let's talk about the plan of redemption. Get ahead of myself here. Verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood. That's you and me. Inasmuch then as we have been born flesh and blood. He himself likewise shared in the same. He had to take on human flesh. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And release those who who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. This is the plan of redemption that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, would take on human flesh, pay the penalty for our sins so that he could destroy the works of the devil. In Colossians chapter 2, in fact, I'd like you to turn there. Keep your... Something there in Hebrews 2, because we're back, but look, we'll be back, but look at Colossians chapter 2, because this describes what Jesus did to come and destroy the works of the devil. Colossians, little tiny book there in the New Testament, chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. There was a long list, dear ones, <laughs> of a record against us that he erased. It's gone. Which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You saw in that video earlier, or the baptism video, that was, you know, there wasn't any explanation given, but you saw that cross and people pinning little notes to it, the handwriting of their sin pinned to the cross. He took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. And then, watch this. Having disarmed principalities, and powers. That's a reference to the devil and his entourage. Having disarmed them, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. I try to remind the devil every once in a while about that. Not that he's forgotten, but I just want, I just want him to know I know. That he has been 
Really, the, the literal translation of that is he's been stripped naked and paraded through the streets. That's how thorough and finished this work is. So the plan of redemption was to destroy the works of the devil and to release from bondage. It says there that in, in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 15 that he came to, he did all of that to release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Bondage is, is you know, being trapped um, being held on to, being restrained or restricted. How many of you find yourself just looping around the same old issue over and over and over? You don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> except, except here. Listen, I was praying this morning. I got out of bed, went into the place where I pray in our house, and I was praying for rescue. I was asking the Lord to save me. Now, I, I've been saved for a long time in the tense of knowing Jesus as my Savior. I am bound for heaven. I love him. But I was praying this morning for rescue, for saving, because I recognized that there was a pattern that had developed in my life, a looping around an issue, and that... As, as hard, I had this kind of fantasy in my mind that I could fix it. <laughs> that I could just do something different and that would change this. That I could, you know. It's a fantasy. Now I'm not saying that, you know, it isn't right to make, um, to do everything we can to live our, a life in a way that, that mirrors the dictates and demands of Scripture. You better do everything you can to line up with the Word of God. But, but look, when, you, when you're in one of those loops, there's nothing you can do. You need saving. And we have a Savior, and He destroyed the works of the devil, and He died so that the fear of death would no longer be the grip that the enemy uses to keep us locked in those patterns those cycles of bondage. Now, here's what I mean by that. Because there's more than one way to die. I mean, there's, look, probably all of us, I mean, we all should have a healthy fear of kicking the bucket. <laughs> I mean, really. I mean, otherwise, you just run out in front of cars and you wouldn't think twice about <laughs> stuff like that. I mean, we, we need to have a healthy fear of death, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's part of being a human being and that's, that's all cool. But, when it talks about the fear of death, it's talking about the fear of life not continuing as you planned. Life not turning out the way you thought it would, the way you think it should. That this pattern of living might not go on. You might lose your job. You might lose your marriage. You might lose your health. These things, these fears, these anxieties that hang over most of us. And I don't know what it is for you, but whatever it is, it is a fear of death. And that's the leverage the devil will use to keep you locked in patterns of, of uh, torment and destruction. Bondage. But Jesus stared down death and triumphed over it. Mm -hmm. 
We've talked about this before. He has taken it out of the way. It's as the, and then, and I've already said, then he stripped our adversary naked, paraded him through the streets, and now it's as though the Lord is saying, what else you got? Mm-hmm. Nothing. Amen. If our Savior has triumphed over death in every form, which he did, then what have we got to fear? And when the enemy comes to use that leverage, oh, you better watch your step because, you know, you might, you might get cancer. That might lead to, you know, you, you know how it goes. Your mind just starts spinning away and then you find yourself reacting in ways that are ungodly and before long, you're, you're, he's got this grip on you and you're cycling through this stuff. And most of those, those cycles of bondage have to do with trying to, to medicate, self-medicate the pain, the fear, the anxiety that all that birthed in you. And the Lord Jesus came to set us free from that. This is the plan of redemption. Now, verse 17. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. The way of salvation includes a relationship with the priest of mercy. Because he knows what it's like to be a man, to be human. The Bible says he was fully human, though never, never becoming less than fully God. He was both. And these, this passage tells us that he, because he became um, human and was, in, and was tempted by sin, but triumphed over sin for us, he is the perfect high priest, the mediator, the one that is between us and the almighty God. That's one of his roles as our priest, our mediator. There's nothing you and I have, have ever or will ever face that he did not. Now the Bible tells us at least, at least three temptations that Jesus, uh, four, that, the, that Jesus stared down. Three in, that followed his, his baptism in water. And then the fourth being in the Garden of Gethsemane where he was tempted to abandon the cross. At least those four. And each one of them, if we had time today to take a look closer at them, they, they are so um, complete in terms of human experience. There's nothing, nothing that you have ever or will ever face, and this is the second time I've said this this morning, that he hasn't already stared down and triumphed over. Have you ever had a difficulty in life and and uh, sought the counsel of someone who managed it better than you? How did you, how'd you get through this? The advice and the counsel they give, is, it's fabulous, it's wonderful to be able to know somebody survived this. Now, I've never, I, I, I've never had a baby, 
uh, and the likelihood of that ever happening is pretty small. <laughs> but I've observed my wife have children three times, and I know that after I know that when the second one came, it was like you could see it on her face. It wasn't easy to do, but she knew she'd survive. She'd been through it once. The knowledge that you can be that you can successfully navigate a challenge is powerful. Now, how much more is it then of value to us to know we have a Savior who has faced every form of temptation we could ever face and without sin. You can call upon Him because not only has he atoned for our sin, covered it, but he is also there to provide for us strength for temptation. Now let's close this up by looking back at the first four verses of this chapter. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For the word spoken through angels, for if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and, dis and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. The peril of neglect. This way of salvation, dear ones, is something we need to always revere, always hold sacred. When it says that we, we need to be careful lest we drift away, when it says that how shall we escape if we neglect? That's, that's, those are words that have to do with subtle things. Subtle ways in which the value of salvation, uh, our treasure of it, our valuation of it becomes um, less. We, we don't, um, va we don't uh, uh, acknowledge its value in our lives as much as we should. If we're not careful, I guess... Uh, what I'm trying to get at is if we're not careful, it's very easy for this great salvation to start to drift away, to slip away. Not that we slip away from it, I guess is a better way to say it. Now look, I want to be really careful here because there's this whole theological debate about whether you're once saved, always saved kind of thing. Um, and I don't even want to get into that. Maybe I just said that and you go, huh? I've never heard of that before. That's fine. I hope, you, I hope you haven't. I do not believe you can lose your salvation. It's not like someday you're going to wake up and, and wonder where you put it. Like it slipped out a hole in your pocket. You're not, it's not going to be that day. And there are people who live in torment of that. That they may do something or say something. I get this question all the time because there is this thing called the unpardonable sin. And don't get me started on that one. But I get people come to me all the time and they really wonder, have I committed the unpardonable sin? This happened just a matter of a, probably about three or four weeks ago. Somebody came to me with that question. There's this fear. Oh, have I lost my salvation? Dear ones, you're not going to lose your salvation. You may let it drift away. 
And even that would not be something that would happen overnight, but after a long pattern of sort of neglecting the weight, the grandeur, the splendor of this salvation. Begin to sort of take it for granted. And, and it starts to become, you know, less and less something that drives you to your knees in gratitude. And what happens then is that you're ripe for the beginning of a, of a seed of deception that the enemy would love to sow into your life that would eventually bring you to a place where you could forfeit, you could lay aside your salvation. Don't go there. Don't go there. Let's, let's don't neglect so great a salvation. 